message this morning is called Wax Covered Fruit, and it is uh, August 16, 2009, Sunday morning, Psalm 78. If you're new to our church, uh, I'm sorry, I know we're scary. The whole kingdom is a little bit scary. God moves in ways that you would not expect, uh, and he seems to really like to do that. He, he refuses to move in the ways that we dictate he should. The idea behind wax-covered fruit comes from going to the grocery store, those of you that don't shop at Whole Check, and in uh, <laughs> all of the other stores, they gloss their fruit over completely with wax. And sometimes they gloss it over to the point that when you bite into it, it's like it gets on your teeth, yeah. right? I like apples. I don't get to eat very many on the Atkins diet. I know it's looked like I've been eating anything I wanted, and I have, but donuts, not apples. And uh, when I when I bite into them sometimes, I feel like I need to go brush my teeth immediately. You know, they're covered. It's to make it look better, but it really doesn't do anything for the quality of the fruit, does it? There are a lot of things in religion that are exactly that way. It's like covering over the fruit God intended with a wax that is appealing to men, but is not appealing to God. Uh, some of our customs in this church, they're not right, they're not wrong, they're uh, just our customs. Some of the things that we do is you'll hear people say, there, when we get to a scripture. This comes from the idea of being where you should be when God tells you to be there. God said, go there and I will feed you to Elijah. And in that place called there, he was fed. So our church kind of responds with the words, there, when we call out a scripture. Okay, so we're in Psalm 78 and y'all are there. there. Starting in the first verse. Hear my people, oh my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. <laughs> you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? <laughs> I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. I am going to tell you, this man says, what we have known and what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. He has decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which He commanded our forefathers to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they, in turn, would tell their children. Then they would put their trust, a Hebrew word for faith, then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his mitzvahs, his commandments. The way that God ordained that revelation works is that it would be progressive in nature. And that what he invested in Abraham, Abraham would invest in his children. And those children would invest in their children all the way down to the children yet to be born. This means that you have received something or are receiving something. You are to protect it to grow it, to love it, and to pass it along. Primarily, this starts in a home. He says, teach your children. I was speaking about homeschool this week, and it is funny because it, it seems like a new concept, right? It's not new at all. It's been going on thousands of years. What is happening is it is being renewed as parents realize their responsibility to do what God has always said we should do in our children. How on earth did we abdicate our responsibility to raise up disciples, children, after ourselves? Well, maybe we were not discipled and we never learned to be 
disciples. We learn to sit and soak. We learn to sit and endure a message and maybe be entertained by it, but not be changed by it. The things that our children have learned from us many times are, do what I say and not what you see me do. Jesus said the opposite. Do not believe me unless you see me do what my Father does. This was the litmus test. So I'm introducing to you this morning, not a homeschooling concept, a biblical concept. We are to have something invested in us. You have to obtain something. This is called holding to the teachings of the apostles. You cannot get them without being taught by them. You can't do it. It's not enough to be a passive observer. We're going to find out that the method was a very close personal interaction where you learn by a lifestyle and not by oration. Where you learned by seeing people in horrible, gut-wrenching circumstances, and you went, wow, that's how you carry out the word of the Lord, and you were disciplined or taught by it. This is entirely different than attending a seminar, a class, hearing something, and learning to regurgitate it, or acknowledging that it's true. That is not discipleship. That might be fishing for men so that they can become disciples, but it is not discipleship. In Genesis 18:19, you can turn there. I can quote it, but I want to get it right. Wouldn't that be a good thing? Psalm 18, verse 19. Yeah, Genesis 18. Let's start in 18:18. 18, 18. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. God had already told him that. And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. He had already told him that. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and what is just. So the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. For God to bring about in your life the things that he has promised you, it must include you learning, receiving from him, and passing it along. What would happen if Abraham didn't teach his children? They wouldn't even know what the promises were. What would happen if those children didn't teach the next generation? We're always about a generation away from apostasy. That is the way that it works. The devil is trying to steal, he is trying to kill, and he's trying to destroy. Have you ever heard I'm too close to him to learn from him? There could not be a more anti-biblical concept. In these two examples, where did you learn? In your own household. The first pastor you should ever meet should be your father. He should pastor you first. Wives, the first pastor you should ever have should be your husband. And then your family should be pastored by a pastor called to the fivefold ministry. But it's just easier to say, no, man, I'm a computer technician. That's somebody else's job. And raising the kids, no, that's the daycare's job. And teaching our people chastity, that's somebody else's job. I mean, can't we get a political amendment to make that work in our school system? This is supposed to flow right out of our home. This is why when Paul lays down the doctrines for the church of how you choose leaders, it was all based on exactly what happened in the home. The idea behind, oh, no, we're too close for this to happen, is basically don't look too close into me, and I don't want to look too close into you because as we see yuckiness, it just won't work. God designed it so that you see both wheat and chaff. And his winnowing fork will divide between the two. This is a process that is lifelong. It's been going on since the first chapter of Genesis when light was separated from darkness. 
It is going on throughout the, the, the world, throughout the creation. And this Bible is commentary on how it happens. When John the Baptist pictured Jesus, he pictured him with a winnowing fork in his hand. Doing it to a whole nation. But before you do it to a nation, it must start in you. And if you want your family to be saved, it must start in your family as well. This means in my loving relationship with Matthew, I see the good, the bad, the ugly. He sees the same in me. And yet we are who God has called us to be. And we learn and grow from each other in that way. Amen? Amen. This is very biblical. It's where it starts. Read with me Joshua. We're going to be in the first chapter of Joshua. I know we live in a day where we think it is possible to be pastored through a television set. Or a radio program. Or an internet broadcast. No, it is possible to be edified, no doubt. It is possible to get a rhema word from God in that setting. It is not possible to be pastored by someone you cannot have interaction with. It is not biblical. It's not. This is not a knock on any church. It's not a knock on any ministry. I am assuming that if you are attending a church that is thousands upon thousands upon thousands, that there are many pastors I don't know about. That's what I'm assuming. Because it is not possible for the one man to pastor thousands of people. The rabbinic setting was no more than 30 people for one rabbi because he did not think it was possible to have them imitate his way of life because they would never get to know him if there was more than 30. How many did Jesus take? How about that? And one of them turned out to be a devil. I know our goal is usually to build big churches, and here it's not. It's to see Jesus big in your lives. That's the goal. One of the benefits is that we get to rub shoulders with each other very personally. It's a benefit and it's a drawback. It's hard, isn't it? It hurts. It's hard to sit next to somebody that knows what you said then. And it's hard to sit next to the person that you know you said that to. This is the body of Christ. This is how this works. This is iron sharpening iron. Has anybody ever seen that process? Because I have not. But I imagine that iron sharpening iron creates some friction, creates some heat, and leaves chunks of iron discarded on the side. But it's worth it to get to the process, which is a sharp sword. You want sharp swords, saints? Yes. I want sharp swords. Joshua 1. Read with me verse 7. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Here's the biggie. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. That means to chew it, grumble on it, speak it out loud to yourself softly over and over and over, day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Forget the next line that says, then you will be prosperous. That is a byproduct. I don't do the word so that I will prosper. I do the word because it is right, and prospering is the result. Yes. This is what is wrong with the gospel of greed that is being preached. If you do this, this is what you will get. A brother told me this weekend, I deserve death. Anything that God gives me beyond this is a blessing. Oh, yes. oh man, that is right. It agreed with my spirit immediately. It agreed with me immediately because this is the gospel. Amen. I want you to hear what Moshe Maimonides says. The rabbis call him Rambam. It's kind of a uh, Jewish nickname, right? They got all kind of cool nicknames. To them, Solomon is Shlomo. And I can't pronounce David's nickname because you would all giggle. Nicknames work that way, right? But Rambam said every person in Israel is obligated to be engaged in Torah learning. 
whether one is poor or wealthy, whether one is whole in body or afflicted with suffering, whether one is young or old, whether he is feeble or strong. Even poor people who are supported by charity and go door to door seeking benevolence, even the man supporting his wife and children, everyone is required to set aside time during the day and the night to study Torah. As it was said, you shall go over it again and again, day and night. That's his commentary on Joshua 1.8. In the culture that sprang the Bible, this Eastern book with us Western minds sitting here reading it, we need to understand it formed the very fabric of life. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 6. Many times a day, Jews wake up and they pray the Shema. In Mark 12, we hear that Jesus recited the Shema and that all the crowd around him was pleased to hear it. In 6, starting in the 4th verse. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Ehad. This is the cry of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a cry of monotheism. It's a cry that denounces all idolatry. It is a cry that announces He is the lone Lord of my life. Do you think the church could benefit from such a statement every day that was heartfelt? Listen to what he goes on to say. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. In other words, all of your three-part being. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your forehead. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. The idea is whether going in or coming out, whether looking at your hands or looking in the mirror at your head, whether talking to your mother or your father or a mother and father talking to their children, it should all be about the Lord. And yet somehow or another our churches have degenerated into a state where what we think service to God is, is showing up on a Wednesday and a Sunday. And if you're really dedicated, some other night of the week. Serving the Lord means that you have eaten His Word. It has become a part of your life. It is life-giving. So that when hurt, when offended, you say, Lord, where else would I go? You have the words of life. And you mean it because you're being sustained by it, not entertained by it. Deuteronomy 11 teaches us very much the same thing. It's just a couple pages, so I'll ask you to suffer through turning those pages. It'll be Deuteronomy 11. Start with me in 18. Fix these words of mine in your hearts. Fix them there. And minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children. Talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. He goes on to talk about holding fast to them. He goes on to talk about it being a blessing or a curse, depending on how you relate and you react to them. Listen to that string of words. Fix, tie, bind, teach, talking, sit, walking, lie down, get up, write them. They are all action words. In your last week, in what way did you have those action words in your life related to the Lord? One year for Christmas, a brother in this church wrote the book of Deuteronomy and gave it to me. Man, what a blessing. That took time. It took a desire to consume the Word of God. It was one of the most cherished gifts I have. It's sitting right next to my bed right now. I can't read his handwriting, but I appreciate the effort. 
Listen to the close personal space in which God intended for you to be taught. He intended you to be taught when you were waking up out of bed. He intended for you to be taught when you were walking along the road. He intended for you to be taught when you were looking at your hands. Taught in your daily life all of the time. Not from a perfect, iconic figure that is everything you think you ought to be. Ken, the Barbie doll, preaching to you. (laughs) This is not the method that God designed for his nation, his people, in which the whole world would be blessed. These are demagogues that are raised up at the people's demand because our itching ears want them. We want one that's pretty, one that sings well, one that speaks well, one that tells us what we want to hear. And what we need is somebody in our lives discipling us daily. Somebody who knows the good, the bad, the ugly, interacts, trudges through it with you. I was told this week that a pastor told a man working with him, put on your high boots, son, you're about to walk through a dirty field. Your pastor should know those things. You should know those things about your pastor. Sometimes there are multiple pastors in a church, and it is not always the guy behind the pulpit. I get that. But the method by which we learn is a personal one, an interactive one, one in which we are in each other's business. And there's nothing that is more offensive to Americans. Nothing. Because we want to be an island to ourselves, completely autonomous, completely independent. Don't you dare tell me what to do. This denies the basis that God works from, which is the Lord God is one Lord. He doesn't share it with you, and this is the structure that he works within, a very close, personal structure. Some of you have heard from me before that there were three houses in Israel's school of teaching. The first is Beth Sefer, the house of the book. All of our children from the age 6 to the age 10 would have been in the house of the book. They would be learning the first day of class. What would happen is you would take the drippings of right dates and you would rub it on the gums of your children. You would write upon a tablet, usually of unleavened bread, so that they could consume the word, literally eat it, and learn my life is based upon ingesting this. That's what you would be teaching a six-year-old. So that by the time that they were ten years old, they would have memorized the Torah, the first five books. Then they would move to Bet Talmud, the house of learning. From 10 to 14 years old, those that were able to graduate and have memorized the first five books would move on to all 39 books of the Old Testament. To graduate at 14 years old, you must have them absolutely 100% memorized. Not everybody could do that, but that is a great, great goal. With each of the schools, there was a progressive dropout rate. But this was the goal, the educational system of Israel. Not only did they memorize the 39 books, they memorized the oral traditions. It says, don't work on the Sabbath, but what does that mean? And they would say, Rabbi so-and-so says, this is work and this is not. They learned the art of asking questions, not regurgitating information, but asking a sincere question. The word says this, and it says this, and I've read them, and I love it. But what does this, how do you carry it out? This is distinctly different than learning how to fill in a blank on a test. It means that you must grasp this concept, grasp this concept, and wrestle with how you relate the two. It sounds like they were being taught to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Not very many students made it to the third house. It's Bet Midrash. It's the house of study and understanding. This is when you would apply to a rabbi. 
The rabbi would examine you. He would tell you things and then listen to the questions you asked and determine whether or not you had what it took to become like him. If he didn't think you did, he said, I'm sorry, you'll have to apply for someone else's yoke, someone else's mantle. You will not be a disciple of mine, a student of mine, a son of mine, a talmudim of mine. And so they might apply to another and another, and they might not be accepted anywhere. Much like applying to an Ivy League school and ending up in a junior college or not in a college at all. If you didn't graduate from those schools, you ended up working in your father's trade. And you understand that at each level, society is benefited by this. Because you need people of various trades. You need people of every area. But it was only the supreme best of the best that made it to the stage where they had been discipled and could teach others outside of their homes. Where was it that the apostles were found when they were still disciples? They were all working in their trades. They were dropouts in their day. This is why later in life when they're overwhelmed in John 15 and they're looking and seeing that the cross is going to approach and they are crushed in their very spirits, Jesus reminds them, you did not choose me. You did not apply to my school, my rabbinic school. I chose you. I'm telling you, saints, that the king of the universe chose you because you do have the ability to be just like him. And he picked dropouts to prove it by. Do you remember some of the comments by the early church when they perceived that these were unlearned, untrained men? They took note these men had been with Jesus. I want people to take note of your lives. But let me ask you, in what way were they taught? We'll examine that in a minute. A rabbi in Hebrew is a master, a teacher, like a master craftsman. Brother Wade is a skilled carpenter. If I wanted to go learn that trade, I would learn as an apprentice uh, in an apprenticeship under a master carpenter. That's the way trades work. The, rabbi, the rabbinic system was much the same way. That means this is the man who is not perfected, but is walking out the Torah in the way that I think best pleases God, and I want to be like him. The Talmud is a learner. In Greek, this is mathetes. The word for disciples, mathetes. I have no idea if that has anything to do with mathematics, but it sure sounds like it. Mathetes. It means study. If you want to say it in Latin, it's disciples. Here where our English word comes from, right? All of that has to do with study. The Hebrew word is a little different. Talmud means one who has learned. <laughs> Not studied. One who has learned. You understand the difference? One is working at it, the other is achieving it. It's like in the movie where he said, I'm sorry we were trying to dance. He said, you were trying, but you were not succeeding. Right? The idea is that through a lifestyle, something is being born in you. It is changing. And everywhere you go, you are bumping into goads that are directing you. Turn with me to First John. A working definition of a Talmud. This is merged from many Bible dictionaries to make sense to me is one who is being instructed for the purpose of imitating and being exactly like the teacher. One who is being instructed to become like the teacher. Why would you go to somebody's cooking school if you had no interest in being able to cook the kind of things they did? Why would you go to apprentice under some craftsman if you had no interest in woodworking and that's what they did for a living? You cannot sit under a pastor that you look at and say, I have no interest in being anything like this human being. Then why are you there? 
because the stained glass is pretty. Because my friends go here. Because it's prestigious. Or like one salesman told me, in the winter months I would starve if I didn't go to that church. He was a car salesman. Young in First John? I'm not. You going to wait for me to get there? All right. Uh, let's go to 2. 1 John 2, look at 5. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Walking is an action. It requires the moving of many body parts in an uh, organized fashion. Walking as Jesus did is not sitting still agreeing that it is right. You actually have to train people after they've been wounded to walk. Mandy's got funny stories about gait training. You should ask her sometimes. Gait training, people's ambulatory abilities, have to do with being coordinated enough, healthy enough to actually walk. We are supposed to carry out God's commands in the way that Jesus walked them out. One of the earliest passages in the Mishnah is a guy named Yossi ben Yozer. <laughs> what a great name, huh? He used to say to his disciples, cover yourself with the dust from your rabbi's feet. I said, wait, that sounds demeaning. It's not demeaning. If you admire a way that a man is walking out the word in his life, it meant get so close to him, get right up behind him, that even the dust that is stirred up from his feet gets on you. It means imitate everything that he does so that you can learn to walk with God like he walked. Think about this. When the disciples are standing there in a town has not received them, what did Jesus say? They're not capable of being like you. Move on. Why weren't they capable? They didn't have DNA gifting. They didn't have the right heart. Did the disciples always have the right heart? No, but they were correctable. And when the rabbi corrected them, they received it. While all of the religious people said, wait, aren't you Mary and Joseph's son? You know, I kind of remember some controversy about the day of your birth. Or rather, the announcement of your mother's conception. They found flaw with the rabbi. But others looked, saw it, received it, found life by it. This is the method that God teaches people. Turn to Psalm 1. Do you think Abraham's children ever saw anything unwholesome in Abraham? You better believe they did. And they better learn from it. Just like your kids see things. In fact, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all at some point in their life said, You know, she's my sister. <laughs> they gave up their wives under threat of death. Doesn't that seem pretty yucky? Yes. That's why Paul says, Follow me. As I follow Christ. Not everything a man does should be imitated. But you should be imitating his way of life. And his way of life is not admirable enough to imitate. Go find somebody who is. Say, but I like the way this one speaks. And I like the church, man. The worship is just, it's moving. But to what purpose? To what purpose if it is not going to produce a life that looks more like Jesus? I like lots of kind of music. I listen to 80s music all the time. I hope that doesn't offend you. But I'm not trying to imitate those people. I like the Eurythmics. It means I could have two hits and then go away. Right? 
I'm not trying to imitate these people. I'm entertained by it. But when we worship in here, I am trying to imitate the people that are around me that love the Lord. I'm spurred on by it. That is my goal. I'm here to be formed and shaped, corrected, taught, rebuked, and encouraged. And I'm the pastor. What does that mean about you guys? Why are you here? I hope you're here to become more like Jesus. Look at this. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It's funny to the Hebrew, a belief is demonstrated in your walk. This is why Genesis 5.24 says Enoch walked with God. It says nothing about what he believed. Nothing about his doctrinal statement. It says he walked with God. It's why Genesis 6.9 says Noah walked with God. It's why Genesis 48.15 says Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob walked with the Lord, the God of Israel. Walked. It had to do with an action, a path, a direction as determined by God. Think about this when you get to something like the book of Galatians that says... Stay in step with the Spirit. Sounds a little bit like you're following after a rabbi, the great rabbi, whose character, whose presence is in you. Rabbi Jesus is inside you, teaching you how to walk. But he has also put visual examples in your life to help you, to keep you, to mature you. All of those things. We could go on with the walking scriptures. Deuteronomy 5.33, walk in the ways of the Lord. 8.6, walk with the Lord in the way that he commanded you. 10.12, 11.22, and on and on and on. But I imagine that would get boring for you. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. Can you endure me for another few minutes? Good, because I don't have it in me to stop. This is how you conjugate this Hebrew verb. Here, you can list the kings of Israel. 
that's all beautiful. What does that have to do with walking with the Lord? Well, my knowledge enhances my walk. Great, I'm not saying be stupid. Trust me, I'm not. I'm actually trying to cure stupid. But I'm saying that it's supposed to be a lifestyle that we imitate, not recoil from. Think about the ways that Jesus taught. He pointed to things in daily life. In Matthew 13, he pointed to a net, a sower, and tares. How does that happen? Because they were walking with him, and guess what? There was a net over there. So he said the kingdom of God is like a net that is let down into the ocean. He used the events of their daily life to teach them. Say, well, what, what about the sower? I imagine somebody was throwing seed in the area. So in everything, the creation was speaking forth the glory of God, and they were seeing how their teacher reacted to it. They saw him insulted. They saw him praised. They saw his family do good to him and bad to him. They saw all of those things, and they learned how they are supposed to walk it out. In Luke 5, there's a boat, and Jesus is in it with the men, fishing. You know why? Jesus went to work with them. I know we say he goes to work with us too, right? How many of you have been typing at your job and Jesus said, oh, type on the other side of the keyboard. The document will get done faster. (laughs) Probably never happened, huh? I tell you, don't let your right click know what your left click is doing. He, He never does those kind of things, right? Can you imagine a lifestyle in which your pastor, your rabbi, those who were mentoring you were sitting next to you going, yeah, okay, see, that's really neat what you do with the hand. The hand is a lot like the fivefold ministry of the gospel. This is God's government in the church. And everything that you did, everywhere that you went, taught you about the kingdom. This is the way in which Jesus taught. Now, I know. Well, how could we do that? We could never have giant buildings like that. The pastor couldn't get to everybody. comes to my house, make sure it's clean. Make sure we only serve the best things. And don't tell him what mommy and daddy were talking about yesterday. I mean, come on now. We've all been there, huh? I was a little kid and remember being nervous because the pastor of first such and such was coming to our house, you know. Be on your best behavior. Why not just be on your normal behavior? Why? Because we want everybody to think everything's okay. Don't expose me. Don't expose, don't don't see into me too deeply. It's all good, just like it is. You stay at a distance, I'll stay at a distance. In fact, can we just interact through the television set? I'll mail you a check and tip you every now and then. And most people are satisfied with that. It is not Bible. It's not Bible. It might be a starter kit for Christianity. Like like a Mr. T starter kit. I got a gold chain when I was a kid, right? One gold chain. Jesus called his disciples. He spoke to them about the lilies of the field, the sparrows in the air. He called them to a radical apprenticeship with the words, come follow me. He taught them to conduct themselves in this way. He said, he who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Puts them into practice. He had nothing to do with believing them. Puts them into practice. When you have some time, read Luke 6, 47. An amazing statement. Puts them into practice. He moved on to work alongside them in ministry. He sent them out on assignments and had them come report back. This is a lot like you teach a teenager to drive. You ride with him for a while. You say, do this, do that, do this. And then you go bite your nails in the corner while they take their first trip to go get milk at the store. It's an apprenticeship. And the Lord works with us the same way. 
They were accountable to his supervision, his correction, his encouragement, because they wanted to achieve a more meaningful spiritual life. And they wanted to learn from him. I want you to hear this. It comes from Romans 1.5. By the way, before we tell you that, personal discipleship is not glamorous. You might even say it has no beauty or majesty to draw you to it. I understand why people would rather just buy the worship CD that Time Life sells than be in a worship service where somebody might prophesy to them or ask them a question or expect them to have a psalm, hymn, or spiritual song. It is a lot easier just to approach God passively. But I have never seen anything bear fruit that way. I've seen lots of people, but I've never seen it bear fruit. Romans 1.5, through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. I want you to hear that. There is an obedience that comes from faith. If you really trust God, it will show up in your actions. And what does that say if there are no actions? You spend some time with me after the service. In three minutes, I'll give you at least 18 New Testament references to obedience and faith that are undeniable if you have a pure heart. Obedience comes from faith. Faith produces it. And when you don't see obedience, there is no faith. So I'm obedient in this area, this area, and this area. I know you're in the process of sanctification like all the rest. Let's get to all the ones you're not being obedient. This is a horrible, hard, gut-wrenching, flesh-tearing, narrowing of the path. And there's only a few who find it. But I want to be in that few. There was a time period in Israel's history where they had a civil war. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split. God's people had a church split. And the church split was over some key principles. Can we only worship God there? I mean, after all, aren't all of us God's people? Right? That's a principle. Does that man have to be our pastor? I mean, God loves us too. Can't we choose one of our own? These kind of principles. This becomes marked in Israel's history as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat's sins. And Jeroboam raised up after him people after people after people, seven kings in a row who were all worse, the Bible said, than the one before them. Then as we get on down to some 10, 11 kings, we get to one named Amaziah. It's been 150 years, and God raises up a unique man named Amos to begin to deal with this. We're going to get there in the book of Amos, but I want to tell you something. 1 Kings 12 lists the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And you tell me he could not be speaking to us today. Four of them. Mixed worship of Yahweh with idolatry. There is no church anywhere that is mixing the worship of God with the worship of athletes. The worship of a man's ego. The pride of a building. The pride of a man, a voice. There's nobody anywhere that is mixing the worship of God with the carnal mind, is there? I imagine there is. The first civil war in Israel's history, this was the first item on the list. Can you worship Yahweh God alone, or can you worship Him alongside these two golden calves? Next on the list. They lessened God's prescribed place to worship by saying, it's too far, it's too hard, it's too impractical to get there. It's great that God's got a temple in Jerusalem that we were all commanded to go to. It is the place God has called us to, but it's too far. We'd rather do it right here. Can't we do it in our own living rooms? You've never heard that, have you? The devil's never told you that before, has he? You don't have to go there. I mean, you can worship God anywhere you want, right? There's 
debate going on on this subject all of the time. It's funny, because the word addressed it a couple thousand years before Jesus. Third one, watered down the priesthood by appointing good men rather than God's men. He speaks so well, comes from a good family. We like the way he teaches. What does that have to do with, is he appointed by Jesus Christ to teach you? He gave some to be apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists. Your pastor cannot stand up and say, I was appointed by God himself and I cannot be fired by anybody except God. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. This sin has been going on since Jeroboam, son of Nebai. We we don't need a Levite. Anybody we want. Last one. They came up with programs not designed by God. They were designed to retain the people rather than reform the people or transform the people. They said, look, 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 I know Passover's during this time, but if we keep it during that time, they're going to want to go to Jerusalem. That's so far. We don't want them going to Jerusalem. They might turn to David, the true shepherd. Instead, look, you guys can do it in any month you want to do it. I mean, after all, you know, God doesn't really care. There's that, that didn't happen in church anywhere, does it? <clears throat> don't think church out there. Is it happening in your life anywhere? Have you heard any of these lies? that you have, I have. These are the sins that every prophet from the southern kingdom was addressing. Every single one. You admire Elijah? He railed against this. You admired Elisha? He railed against this. You admire Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel? They railed against this. What do you think they would say today? So God begins to raise up people. Look at Amos 7. This uh, mixing of Yahweh with idolatry. This uh, saying, getting to God's place of worship is too hard. This, well, anybody can really be a pastor. This idea that a program that retains people is more important than a program that transforms people. It's a little bit like putting wax upon fruit. It's a little bit like making a rotten piece of fruit look shiny. Look like something that's edible. But when you bite into it, you know the difference. You might even say that it has a form of godliness. But in the end, it does not have power. If Paul had to write that in Timothy 3.5, and it was going on in that day, what do you think is happening two years, or 2,000 years later? You know the name of seven? Yes, sir. I'm not. Amos. I thought Amos was famous for making cookies. And I'd been in church a long time before I read the book of Amos. And it is a good book. He is raised up to address the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, that have run rampant for 150 years. And in the 7th chapter and 12th verse, Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. <laughs> Don't look into my life too deeply. Get away from me. Who, what gave you the right? What gave Amos the right? God called him. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Go somewhere else. Work somewhere else. Sounds like Amaziah was only used to the kind of prophet that prophesied for money. Huh. Go earn your bread somewhere else. You think Amaziah, that Amos was interested in earning his bread? Or do you think he was interested in being obedient to God? Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because 
This is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Really? Really? If this is my church, if this is my temple, if this falls within my kingdom, then whose is it not? Jesus. Can you imagine? The town the man lives in is called the house of God, but he is claiming its sanctuary, claiming its temple as his personal property and throwing out the prophet. I'm sure that's never happened anywhere, right? Nobody's ever stood up and spoken an anointed word and somebody said, this is my church, get out. That's right. That's how most of our largest churches on the planet today were started, huh? You don't fit in our denomination anymore. You had an experience that was outside of what we say God can do. Never mind the fact that you've just outgrown us. There's fruit, there's missionaries all over the world, and that you never responded in any way but lovingly. It's outside of what we say God can do. Get out. This is our church. Do not prophesy anymore of Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd. That's a good place to start. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. If you have a different translation, it might say that he dressed sycamore fig trees. The actual word has more to do with piercing than anything else. I pierced sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go and prophesy to my people Israel. I'm not going to have time to teach you all of what Amos does. But suffice it to say that his experience was not in the professional priesthood. His experience was not in the religious system of his day. His experience was in taking care of animals, caring for their needs. The biblical type for a pastor, taking care of needs. And it was also in dressing or tending to sycamore fig trees, which is an interesting kind of tree. Because this kind of tree produces fruit, but it actually rots because it's encapsulated with a waxy covering. The fruit never grows to the place or gets ripe enough to pierce the outer skin and bear fruit that is edible. The fruit stays inside this hard, waxy pierce or covering that needs to be pierced before it can bear fruit. So if you wanted to grow sycamore figs, you needed to hire someone who would go around and cut a circle out of the fig. And if you cut a circle out of the fig, then it began to bloom outside of that waxy covering and produce a fruit that was edible. Amos pierced the nation of Israel. He said, there's going to be a famine in your land, a famine of hearing the word of God. The sun's going to go down at midday and everybody's going to grieve as grieving for an only child. Did that happen to Israel? Yeah, it did. And they will bear fruit to life because of it. Zechariah says they will look upon the one they pierced and mourn as for an only son, and a fountain will be opened in Israel, and it will cleanse Jacob from their sins. The question, though, is not so much has that happened in Israel. Is it, is it happening in you? What kind of waxy coatings are in your life that keep you from bearing fruit? Remember, this waxy coating can be mixing your worship with God, with your ego, your pride, vanity, athletics. It can be lessening what God has told you to do by saying it's too hard. It's impractical. It can be watering down how you view the man God appointed. I'll take a good man. doesn't have to be God's appointed man. It can be participating in programs designed to retain you rather than reform you. This is what Amos was on the scene to pierce a hole in so that people could begin to bear fruit. 
in an effort to reach more people, in an effort to preserve what God had given them, because Jeroboam was appointed by God. Isn't that amazing? Jeroboam set the northern kingdom on a path that God could not bless. It was subtle at first, having a form of godliness, 2 Timothy 3.5, but ultimately denying its power, so it became utterly corrupt. Covering over every sin with wax to look good before men, but be useless before God. This was like a religious ladder. It was like a tool that men looked and said they felt closer to God, but they were not transformed by God in a meaningful way. The etymology of the word sincere is greatly debated. I found that out on Wikipedia this morning. But it is undeniable that the word sincere in Latin is combined with two words. The first is sine, and it means without. And Sarah is wax, without wax. This comes from the idea that if you were going to buy that pot back there that the offering box is sitting on, because you wanted it to hold water, you wanted to make sure that it had complete integrity. There were no cracks in it. But some people didn't want to take the time to make sure that the cracks had been filled properly, so they simply shoved waxy coatings over it and then repainted Well, you were pretty disappointed if you hauled that thing home and tried to boil water in it. Or you tried to get it to hold your, wife, your life's drinking supply. Because it would not do what it was designed to do. It looked good before men, but it really had no power to perform that which it was supposed to do. So when you were a sincere person, you were a person that had no waxy coatings, no guide. You said, whatever I am, I am before the Lord. There's a big flaw right here, a crack, and it hurts. But we can all learn from it as you see God heal it in me. And if he heals it in me, he will heal it in you. God sent them a spiritual famine. The response of some was to hunger for God. The response of others was to create more programs to pretend that God was there when he wasn't. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to read church history and find out we went 1,500 years in church history where the presence of God was not moving in a powerful way in our churches. But there was stained glass. There was orchestras. There were men who were paid to speak. Lies went unchanged and people starved to death in a spiritual famine. And God sent people to pierce that veil so that the church could begin to bear fruit again. History calls it the Renaissance Age. The church calls it the Reformation. I think it's time for a Reformation personally. I think it's time for a Reformation even within the United States. Turn with me to Luke 19. I have you for a few more minutes. And I intend to make them count. Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho. All of you Bible students know that Jericho represents the kingdoms of the world. It is the first thing that the Israel, the prince with God, after crossing the Jordan that represented the cross, that represented salvation, that represented the waters of death, that represented baptism, all of those things, they faced the walls of Jericho. And they saw the kingdom of the world fall because they spoke through the authority of the king of the sheep. They blew shofars and saw it fall. So Jericho would be indelibly associated in their mind with the world system that is to fall at God's command. There was a man one time who was traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It symbolizes the world. He was on the right road, but he was headed the wrong direction. Well, here Jesus is entering Jericho, 
the world system, and was passing through, <laughs> didn't intend to stay. He came to reform it, to change it, to pierce it. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. Oddly enough, it says he is a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Boy, his mama must have had high plans for him. Whoever held the baby in their hands and said, you know, I hope this one becomes a crack-addicted prostitute. Probably never happened, right? But a, ta a tax collector and a chief tax collector in Israel would be thought of that way. This man is siding with the Romans in collecting usury against his own people. And he's not just a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. He might have been Matthew's boss. Matthew Levi was also a tax collector. And he was wealthy. Don't you inherently have a distaste for the wealthy? Unless, of course, you're wealthy. You know what his name means? Pure. God's got a way of calling the things that are not as though they were. He may have been the most leprous, despicable human being that was walking the face of the earth, but he could be made pure. He may have been unable to bear fruit because of the waxy coating upon his life. But if pierced by the word of God that is sharper than any double-edged sword, he could bear fruit. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. Did he know something about Jesus? Why would he want to see who he was? You have to know something of a man's reputation to want to see who he was. This is like saying, I know Jesus, but I want to know him better. Can you find anybody in the North American continent that has no idea, if you say Jesus Christ, who we're speaking about? But how many want to know him better? Lots say they do. We sing the songs in worship, and some people are lying when they sing it. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. No short jokes today, because we're all found to be short. We want to embrace more of Jesus. We want to know more of the way that he works, but it is our own shortcomings that keep us from doing it, isn't it? My own selfish pride, my own stubborn ways, my own fleshly inabilities. So Zacchaeus does something. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. How remarkable. He didn't climb an oak tree. He didn't climb a willow tree. He didn't climb any other kind of tree. He picked the one kind of tree that had to have a special circumcision of the heart to bear fruit. Maybe he did that because it was there. You know, I bet he would have rather climbed some other kind of tree. But it's the one that God provided. I'm not suggesting that the religious ladders in your life were all wrong. They may simply have been what was there. But the way that you respond to it when Jesus shows up becomes very important. Everybody was given something to work with. But we're supposed to grow it. We're supposed to pass it along. We're supposed to be moved by the King of Kings. Revelation is supposed to be progressive. He climbs a sycamore fig tree to see Jesus, since Jesus was coming that way. If Jesus is headed your direction, you need to do everything in your power, even if it's a sycamore fig tree, to grasp how wide, how deep, how long is his love for you. Find out what it is that he wants of you. Begin to comprehend all when Jesus reached 
the spot. Come on now, Jesus hits the spot. Sometimes it's sensitive. Sometimes it hurts. Because he knows exactly where you need to be pierced. This is why he looks at one and says, come follow me. looks at another and says, first, you sell everything you have. Why does one just get to come follow him? He doesn't have to sell anything. And the other has to sell everything he has. He knows where you need to be pierced. He knows what your waxy covering is. And the word declares in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, that your heart must be circumcised to follow the Lord. All of us have different waxy coatings. But God requires love to be sincere. For you to hate what is evil. So that you can cling to what is good. No matter how good it is. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, pure one, come down immediately. I must stay in your house today. Of all the places that Jesus could stay, this would be the last one anybody would pick. But we serve a God who uses things without beauty or majesty. He uses things that are considered ignoble and makes them noble. Isn't it funny that familiarity to us breeds contempt? But it is the thing that God uses to change and shape us. What we want are people to teach us from a distance so that we can glean what we want to glean and leave what we don't want to leave. What we want is people that we can elevate because we don't have to see all the good, bad, and ugly in their lives. And what God commands of you to interact in a very personable way and love His working in people regardless of what you see. After all, isn't that how He walked? right. Jesus didn't pick the perfect, did he? He didn't interact with people from a distance, did he? He went and sat and ate with the most flawed people that he could find. And he loved them no matter what anybody thought. <coughs> so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. I want you to understand something. It was fine for him to climb the sycamore fig tree. It was there. But when he heard from Jesus, he left his religious ladder follow Jesus wherever he was going. And where did Jesus take him? Back to his own home so that he could change him. I've known more people that have heard from God but could not leave their religious ladder for fear of what the crowd might say. For fear that if the wax was stripped away it wouldn't look good. For fear they could not do what God told them. You say what you want to about Zacchaeus. You can say short. You can say he was a tax collector. You could say that he was wealthy. You could say all kind of ugly things about him. You know what you could not say? That he did not obey Jesus when he spoke. Didn't they say ugly things about Jesus? He's demon-possessed. He's a drunkard. He hangs out with whores and tax collectors. He let that unclean woman touch him. But you know what you could not say about Jesus? That he was disobedient to his father. In fact, John 14 says the world's going to learn that I love the Father and do exactly what He's commanded. He was speaking of the cross. He was pierced. No waxy coating in that man. Look what happens now. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He is gone to be the guest of a sinner. Would that hurt you? Let's just suppose that Matthew comes to your house tomorrow. And you're excited because Matthew's a pastor and he's at your house. But you walk outside to check your mail and your neighbor's going pastors at their house. Are you kidding me? Does he not know what kind of people they are? You know, I could hear them fighting in their backyard yesterday. You know the kind of things they said to each other? Those, I mean, 
that pastor doesn't know what kind of sinners he's dealing with. Can you imagine how that would make you feel? Listen to Zacchaeus' response. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord. Notice he doesn't address them. He addresses his Lord. Sometimes we're so worried about addressing everyone else. It's the Lord that we stand or fall to. Look, Lord. Look, Lord. Well, that's a mouthful. Look, Lord. Look into me, Lord. Look at me. Hear what they're saying, but look at me. Look at my heart. And it's going to be displayed in my actions right now. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. How do you know that this man got saved? He heard Jesus speak. He did what Jesus told him to do. And then on his own accord, he says, look into me, Lord. I want to show you my faithfulness. The law says I have to add one-fifth to anything that I've stolen. You math students says that's 20%. And what does he do? He pays back four times what he owed. Why would he do that? Because he had a deep revelation that somebody was paying a spiritual debt that was more than four times what he owed for him. And he wanted to walk like his master walked. Say what you want to about Zacchaeus, but God has only spoken one word to him, come down, and he was obedient. And off of that one word, he is now making a public proclamation of his faith through his deeds. He's taking the wealth that he amassed and giving it away. doesn't want people to think badly of Jesus. You ever been concerned about how your behavior reflected on Jesus? Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. He found him in a sycamore fig tree, how fitting. His whole life he had covered himself with the wax of wealth. His whole life he had covered himself with the wax of leadership, chief, tax collector. His whole life he had been hanging out in a sycamore fig tree that could never bear fruit. But one word from the Lord caused him to come down out of that tree and bear fruit unto salvation when the whole world thought it was impossible. How will your life end? Will you be a sincere vessel? Allow God's searing heat of His Word, He's a consuming fire, to expose the cracks in your foundation so that they can be filled? Or will you run hide and stuff them with wax? Intimacy is in to me see. The prophecy we got before worship today said that your intimacy with the Lord will determine what you do in that day. I want you to be intimate with the Lord. And one of the vehicles He's put in your life are the people on your left, right, and standing in front of you speaking now. Be intimate with each other. Be correctable. Be loving. Speak to one another hymns, songs, and spiritual songs. Be your brother's keeper. And let's grow to be like the Lord without wax. Amen? Amen. Stand to your feet. Let's pray.
you to do something. We're going to pray. There's going to be no heads bowed and eyes closed and pinkies raised. That kind of cowardice thing has always made me sick. I'm just going to ask you to dare this week to let the words come out of your mouth while you're all alone with the Lord. Lord, expose my cracks. Shake my foundation. I do not want to be caught in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Send Amos into my life to pierce me. The sycamore fig tree's been good, Lord, but your word is better. I want you to speak to me about your will for my life. See what he does. And if you have the courage to follow him, there's no negative fruit that you can bear. But if you walk out of here and it just becomes another message, and you leave unchanged by it, and you say things like, well, that was anointed, we like that service. But anointed for what purpose? For what purpose? Mighty God, we're asking now that your power would be upon us. Lord, that your heavy hand would be upon us. Lord, we want to be sincere before you. We want our love to be sincere. We want to recoil from what is evil, no matter how good it looks and how wax-covered it might be. That we might cling to you. Lord, we don't care what people will say. Actually, we do, but we don't want to. You say the word, Lord, and four times what is required of us we would do because you've done so much more for us. We love you, Jesus. Amen. All right, saints of the living God. Uh, y'all frolic, have fun, eat too much, and uh, remember there's a ladies' meeting today.